This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and I'm joined today by Dr. Shani Esperaz for part two of our diabetic retinopathy series. Dr. Esperaz, thank you again for being here today. Thank you so much for having me again, Dr. Ball. Like I mentioned on our previous episode, I wish I had this resource as a trainee. I love podcasts, so I probably will tune into these episodes even on my drive now as an attending. I'm also excited to have these as a resource because podcasts are basically part of my life now as a resident when I have very little time to read or do anything else. Right. So let's get to our case. Um, just as a reminder, if you didn't tune into the last episode or you are coming back to it later, we're looking at a 25-year-old newly diagnosed diabetic patient who presented to our clinic as a referral from her primary care physician. She was visibly upset about her new diagnosis and had a list of questions for us. She had experienced some blurry vision in the last two months and had two episodes of subconjunctival hemorrhage in the last year. Her highest recorded blood glucose was 300, and she now has a hemoglobin A1C of 8. So we left off the last episode discussing proliferative diabetic retinopathy and high-risk proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So just as a reminder to our listeners, we broke down high-risk proliferative diabetic retinopathy as whether or not there was vitreous or retinal hemorrhage. So in patients where you see vitreous or retinal hemorrhage, any patient with any neovascularization of the disc or any patient with neovascularization elsewhere that is greater than or equal to one half disc diameter is considered high risk. In patients with no hemorrhages, then you really need disc involvement and NVE doesn't matter. So if there are no hemorrhages and there is neovascularization of the disc that is greater than or equal to a quarter of the disc diameter, then those patients are high risk. So this brings us to our first important study, the diabetic retinopathy, retinopathy study or the DRS. So one of the ways that I remember this study is that DRS has three letters and so does PRP. Dr. Esperaz, can you tell us what we need to know about this study? Yes. So the DRS focuses on patients with high-risk PDR. And the take-home point from this study, and, and remember, it's important to remember key points from the studies. You don't have to recall all the details of every study, but there are buzzwords, and that's what we're touching on here. So for the DRS, 
it's the take-home point is for patients with high-risk PDR, PRP should be done for these patients regardless of vision. Full PRP is 1,200 or more 500 micrometer burns separated by half burn width. PRP reduced the chance of severe vision loss for patients with high-risk PDR from 44 to 20%. So you can think of it as reducing their risk of vision loss by 50%. So how are you treating high-risk PDR patients now, and how do you treat these patients in your clinic? So this is a great question. The BSCS discusses the DRCR-NET protocol, which assess anti-VEGF treatment with ranibizumab versus PRP. They show that they had similar, similar vision outcomes. However, ranibizumab was associated with better average vision over two years, reductions in peripheral field loss, reduced rates of vitrectomy surgery, and fewer cases of DME onset. It's important to remember that patient compliance is important with anti-VEGF treatment, as these patients will need to come in for monthly visits for about one to two years. In my own practice, I've unfortunately seen a lot of high-risk PDR in young patients. This can be a very aggressive disease. I usually do a combination of injections and PRP for these patients. I first like to do a fluorescein angiogram to assess for things like capillary dropout, peripheral neovascularization, and macular ischemia. I start with injections because they act fast. The problem with injections is that they wear off for a few weeks, and again, that's why it's important for patients to come in for monthly treatments. I usually follow this by doing PRP, which can take one to three months to see the full effect. During this time, I also do monthly injection treatments depending on how high risk the patient is for vision loss. If there is DME, I treat the DME as well because PRP can worsen macular edema. Again, follow-up is key for these patients. PRP is nice because it can last a lifetime. So if you're concerned about follow-up, I would definitely recommend PRP um, in patients that you're concerned might not come back for monthly injection treatments. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can only imagine how much of a burden it is on patients, not only to have to come in for monthly visits, but also to try to wrap their head around the fact that they'll be getting injections in their eyes once a month. It's not an easy thing. So um, it's it's great that we have these resources to help protect their vision, but just being mindful of how, how this may affect patients. So we do have one last retinal complication of diabetes that we haven't discussed yet, and that is diabetic macular edema. The major study that we need to remember about diabetic macular edema is the Early Treatment of Diabetic Retinopathy Study, or the ETDRS. So as we know, I really like my mnemonics and tricks to try to remember things. And one of the ways that I try to remember ETDRS is similar to um, the previous study, I look at how many letters are in the name. So ETDRS has five letters, and there are five letters in Clinically Significant Diabetic Macular Edema, or CSDME. So five and five. Dr. Esperaz, can you review ETDRS for us? Yes. And Dr. Ball, I love your mnemonics. That is so, so helpful. So I can recite the classifications of uh, clinically significant diabetic macular edema because this was drilled into my head in residency and by my fellowship director. So 
Number one, any edema or thickening within 500 microns of the fovea. Number two, hard exudates within 500 microns of the fovea. And number three, any edema or thickening measuring at least one disc area within one disc area of the fovea. So the ETDRS study assessed clinically significant diabetic macular edema using a contact lens. They found a 50% reduction of moderate visual loss in CSME treated with focal laser. Early scattered photocoagulations resulted in a small reduction in the risk of severe visual loss. They also looked at aspirin use and found that there was no effect in ocular outcomes, but the aspirin use did reduce cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. Okay, so for ETDRS, we have the rule of fives. ETDRS has five letters. It assesses CSDME, which also has five letters. And the most important number to remember is 500 microns. So edema or hard exudates within 500 microns of the fovea or edema of one disc diameter within one disc diameter of the fovea. I know that a lot of these studies are often outdated and it's not necessarily what we do in practice today. Is it different for you in your practice or um, how have things changed? Exactly. It's important to recall these studies, especially for testing purposes. And it's nice to be able to see the evolution of retinal treatments. So the BSCS also discusses the DCR-NET protocol, which found that ranibizumab combined with focal or grid laser treatment was more effective at one or two years in increasing visual acuity than laser alone or in combination with triamcinolone injections. In practice, most specialists do monthly treatments with anti-VEGF for patients with diabetic macular edema. Focal laser is nice, but there is also a risk of inducing scotomas. FA is really helpful in patients with DME to see if there is one leaking microaneurysm that's extrafoveal enough to do laser. I would say that most patients with clinically significant diabetic macular edema, most retina specialists treat them with anti-VEGF treatment. Yeah, that was really helpful because I think that we often get lost in the weeds of these treatments and these trials, but just remembering that it doesn't always necessarily translate into practice. And of course, anti-VEGF treatments are a godsend for us in ophthalmology. So we have two more studies to get through, and they both focus on type 1 diabetes like our patient from our clinical scenario. The first study is the diabetic retinopathy vitrectomy study. The DRVS showed that early vitrectomy for patients with non-clearing vitreous hemorrhage increased their chance of 2040 vision in patients with type 1 diabetes, and these patients were monocular in the study. There was no benefit for patients with type 2 diabetes. Okay, so really we're focusing on patients with type 1 diabetes with non-clearing vit heme. So the second study is the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial. The DCCT showed that intensive control of blood glucose is beneficial in patients with type 1 diabetes. The study also showed reduced risk of developing retinopathy by 76% and slow progression by 54%. So that was a lot to digest, but I think we went through all of the major diabetic retinopathy studies. So just to summarize... The diabetic retinopathy study has three letters, and it involves PRP for high-risk PDR. So three letters in DRS, three letters in PRP, and three letters in PDR. The 
ETDRS has five letters and focuses on CSDME, which also has five letters and follows the rule of fives for classification of CSDME. The DRVS and DCCT both focus on type 1 diabetes. DRVS focuses on early vitrectomy for non-clearing vitreous hemorrhage, and DCCT focuses on intense blood glucose control in patients with type 1 diabetes. And now, the moment we've all been waiting for. So before we end the episode, I ask all of my guests, If you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? Dr. Paul, this is such a good question. I feel like this is also a good interview question for those on the interview trail. So if anybody needs some inspiration. (laughs) So this is, like I said, a good question. I would say my, my grandmother. So my grandmother, she actually, she raised me. Uh, She lived with me. And so um, she passed away during my intern year. And I'd love to have dinner with her. I'd want to show her what I've become. Uh, I want to show her her great-grandchildren. And of course, I'd make her some Sri Lankan dishes that I watched her make for me as I was growing up. I'm sure that in some place in the universe, she is experiencing all of these beautiful things with you and getting to enjoy your food on whatever dimension or level um, we believe in. But (laughs) that's a beautiful answer. Dr. Esperaz, thank you again so much for joining me today. This was really such a helpful series, and I think that our listeners will also feel that way. Thank you for having me, Dr. Ball. It was my pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. Hope to see you next time on The Pupil Pod. 